Well, as you recall, not this summer, but the summer before, I took a long sabbatical in order to uh, work on my doctor of ministry project. And during that time, we kind of had an all-star lineup uh, come to our church um, to uh, most most of the uh, substitute preachers were men from the Master Seminary. And there was uh, one in particular that I said in my mind, I need to have him back. And so we have that opportunity today. Um, our guest today has done it all. And I really, I, I love and admire this man because he has epitomized what Ephesians 4 is. Uh, it speaks of the gifts of men that God gives to the church. And he really has done it all. He um, has been and currently is a pastor. He uh, has been and currently is a uh, seminary professor. Um, he has also spent uh, two decades in Africa as a missionary, first in South Africa, then in Malawi, um, as a church planter, as a as a missionary, as a uh, seminary teacher, teaching uh, other pastors in uh, the in those indigenous countries. So I have a lot of admiration for him. He's even done something very, very few men have ever done, and he doesn't even know this. But I have a short list of two pages of things that I read every week before I study for a message, and he's on that list, something that he told me once in the doctor of ministry class um, about how to do introductions, and I read that every week. And so he's been an impact on my life as well. Um, this is his story, so, so uh, I'll, I'll tell it, but he can tell it better. Uh, the story is he went to South Africa as a single young missionary. He preached the message on marriage, gave an altar call, and only one woman came forward. And that would be his wife, Anita. Anita, where are you? Are you? There you are. Hi, Anita. And their four kids are here with us here today as well. So I know you've heard that a thousand times, haven't you? But uh, he is a dear man. Would you please give a warm welcome to Dr. Brian Biedebach? Well, it's my privilege to be back here again. And... Uh, it is uh, really a joy to be back with you. We enjoyed fellowshipping with you before. In fact, um, there was one occasion uh, last year where we were on our way back down from Northern California on a Sunday afternoon, and we said, hey, let's stop and just worship with uh, the folks here in Bakersfield. So we snuck in on an evening service here, and grateful to be with you. We, we really uh, do enjoy worshiping with you. I invite you to take your Bibles at this time with me and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking this morning at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 14. And the title of the message this morning is The Mission of the Church. The Mission of the Church. I'm going to go ahead and read beginning in Acts chapter 14, verse 1, which says this, In Iconium... They entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, 
and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, once again we come before you. We just ask that you would take this time where we're looking at your word, and you would teach us more about who you are, how you would want us to live, that your name would be exalted, that your name would be proclaimed, ultimately that you would receive more worship. For you are surely do that, and we are grateful to be able to worship you this morning in many different ways together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by pointing out that over the past 50 years or so, there has been a great shift in the focus of missions by and, uh, throughout the United States and in many churches. The, the past 10 years, in fact, we've heard all kinds of different terms that are used now, and some of them we're even unsure how to use them. Or we used to be just we talked about missions and missionaries, but people talk about being a missional church, or you'll read books and they'll talk about the missio day. And so in some ways, it's, it's the term missions and, and missionary has become so broad that it's almost impossible to determine what some people are talking about when they're speaking about missions. I remember when I was in South Africa one time, uh, there was a young believer, a new believer, who came up to me at church or after church and, and asked me the question. They said, uh, he said, can you tell me what a missionary is? And I said, thinking to myself, this is going to be an easy question, but I, I said to him, well, why do you ask? He says, well, I've met people all over Africa who call themselves missionaries, and I can't really figure out what they all have in common. That began for me a, a real passion to try and, you know, clear up the confusion in my own mind and in the minds of others of not only what a missionary should be, but what the mission of the church should be. I mean, if you can imagine going into a church, it's not uncommon to go into churches nowadays and to see a big bulletin board with a map in the foyer. And uh, nothing wrong with having a map in the foyer. You know, if you go into a, a, a map, the funny thing about maps is if, you, if you're in America, you know, America is, of course, right in the middle of the map. We split Russia in half so that we can actually be in the middle of the map. And uh, it's a common experience. I'm sure many of you have, have seen this sort of thing. But a lot of times the mission, the mission team will say, well, let's put a map where our missionaries are at. And so... They typically have this big map, and it says, Matthew 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, right? And then it'll have a a big pin right in the city where that church is at. And then it'll have little pins all over the world, and tied to the big pin are strings that go to the little pins, and by the little pins are pictures of all the missionaries. You've seen this sort of thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, I would propose to you that 50, 60 years ago, most of those pictures would be of people who are involved in church planting, church strengthening, proclaiming the gospel type ministries. But it's possible today to walk into the same church and the pictures have changed and the the, the little pins might have changed a few locations, but many of those people would be involved in other things like social justice, social welfare, orphan care, medical missions, uh, feeding programs, all kinds of things that are not primarily related to a proclamation type ministry. 
and many people haven't noticed it. They've noticed that one by one, these missionaries leave the field and new missionaries are on. But we call them all missionaries, even though many missionaries today are doing something completely different than just 40 or 50 years ago. Now, if I were to ask you the question, well, what is the mission of the church? We might have many different answers. One person might say, well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that the chief end end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that is our mission. And someone else might say, well, I think our mission is to love God and love our neighbor because that really summarizes the Ten Commandments. And someone else might come up and say, well, our mission is to trust and obey because, well, I just like the hymn, Trust and Obey, and so that's our mission. And and in one sense, it would be foolish of me to try to argue with any of those answers. Each of those answers describes part of a faithful Christian life. But being a missionary... Is that really just a synonym for being a Christian? I mean, is there a difference between being a missionary and being a Christian? The term missionary is actually not found in the Bible. It actually comes from a Latin word, the Latin word mito, which is related to the Greek word apostello. We get the word apostles from it. But the word apostello simply means to be sent out, a sent one. And in fact, in our Bibles, sometimes we find people, we we know about the 12 apostles, the apostles we say with a capital A, like the Apostle Paul and the other apostles who were with Jesus. But there were others who were called apostles, uh, like Barnabas, for example, who was sent out from the church of, of Antioch. He was a sent one. And so... Uh, those are what we call apostles with the small a. And that word, apostello, actually is a verb. It can be used as a verb and um, they, as the church sent out people. And so I, when I think about missionaries, I just use a very broad definition, is that someone who is sent, someone who is sent for a particular mission. And, in, and really, in a general sense, you can have military missions that have, quote-unquote, missionaries who are sent out. But the question is, What is the church sending out their missionaries to do? And should there be a focus? Should there be a focus? Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch, as I mentioned. Um, And uh, I would propose to you that um, generally all Christians do share the same general mission that Paul and Barnabas had, was to make disciples. Matthew 28 Uh, 18 through 20 says, Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now that passage, uh, sometimes people tend to focus on the wrong thing. The, The focus really is on making disciples. Making disciples. And the way we go about doing that, the words that help describe how we do how do we make disciples are baptizing them and teaching them. Baptism was often associated with conversion, done right at the time of conversion. And I believe Matthew 28 has the idea that you're preaching the gospel, people are getting saved, they're becoming baptized, and then you're teaching them all that Christ has commanded. They're learning about the the word of God. They're learning the gospel and they're learning the word of God. So Where is a great place for someone to do that? A local church. It's almost like Christ established something perfect for making disciples in. But I remember preaching on Matthew 28 one time, and an elderly gentleman came up to me afterwards. He says, I think I finally get it. He says, 
Every one of us, each one of us, me too, I'm expected by God to make disciples of other people. I said, it's exactly right. And that's a part of why we're in the church. And in a general sense, we all share in that great commission. But in a more specific sense, many churches, most churches, partner together with individuals who are sent out to devote themselves to the mission of preaching Christ, especially in areas where he has not been proclaimed, and strengthening churches in areas where he has been proclaimed. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch. And in Acts 13, actually just a chapter prior to where we're looking at, in Acts 13, verse 2, it mentions the work that the Holy Spirit had called them to. And they had this certain work that was their mission. They were sent out as missionaries or sent ones. They traveled to the island of Cyprus. If you picture a map, and maybe you have a map in the back of your Bible that you've never looked at, but there's a map that says Paul's Missionary Journeys. You can feel free to turn there at this time. We'll take a look at these maps. But if you, if you picture the, the Mediterranean world, and there in the, the east, eastern and north, uh, air, northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea was a town called Antioch, and that's where Paul and Barnabas were ministering. And their church sent them out, and they first went to the island of Cyprus. And there on Cyprus, they started in the east side in a town called Salimus, and they traveled throughout the island and later ended up on the west side in Paphos. And then from there, they got in a boat and traveled north to a place called Perga. That's on the southern border of Turkey, where Turkey borders the Mediterranean Sea. That's where John Mark deserted them. And if, if you know, if you, you know, we were kind of hard on John Mark, but, you know, if you were getting ready to go on the journey that they were getting ready to go on, you might, I mean, how many of you really want to go to Turkey nowadays? I mean, this is really the kind of place where you could go to a, an embassy and maybe not come out alive. And, and I mean, that's today, but back then it was, it was just as dangerous. In fact, they were getting ready to head north on a road that was known to have robbers, was known to have diseases like malaria, and was known to be a place where people didn't return from. It was a dangerous, and they were going to go preach Christ to people who very well would have been hostile towards that message. John Mark left them there at Perga in southern Turkey, and they traveled 100 miles north to a place called Antioch, Pisidia. Now, Antioch Pisidia must be confused with the church that they originally left from, which was in Antioch. There were many places named Antioch in those days, uh, much like you can go to a Trump golf course in more than one place. People who tend to be famous and build things and have all kinds of influence tend to name things after themselves, and that's why we have many Antiochs back in those days. But Antioch Pisidia, they traveled there. They were persecuted there. And then they left from Antioch, Pisidia. They traveled another 80 miles to the west to a region we know as Galatia. These are the churches in Galatia, beginning with Iconium. And that's where we find them in Acts chapter 14. They're in Iconium. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 because I believe that this passage will help to give us a good idea of the mission of the church. When, when you talk about supporting missionaries... Missionaries often come back and say, well, you know, I'm involved in evangelizing the lost or assisting the poor or comforting the hurting or counseling those who are sin or, or in sin or feeding the hungry or caring for the sick or I'm standing up for the abused or human trafficking or I'm stopping the spread of disease like HIV AIDS. 
I'm building facilities for people to worship in. I'm building houses for people to dwell in. We're building schools for people to learn in. The list goes on and on and on and on. But the important thing is that we must have a focus of what missions is all about. Because as, if missions is everything, then, and then missions is nothing. We're just out there just doing everything and we'll just support whatever we want. And it's really more of what our heart just, you know, is drawn to. And that's what we'll support instead of really looking to God's word and say, well, what was the focus of their mission? Our passage this morning is a descriptive passage, but it describes how the early church applied some prescriptive passages where they were prescribed to go into all the world and make disciples, or as Acts 1.8 put it, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we come to our passage, Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, where we see five descriptions about the mission work of Paul and Barnabas that will help you to keep the right focus as you are involved in missions. <clears throat> five descriptions or five typical events in the mission of Paul and Barnabas that will help us, help you as a church, help you as individuals, help all of us to better understand the role of missions and the focus of missions. The first description is found in verse 1, and that is the mission began with proclamation. The mission began with proclamation. It says in verse 1, In Iconium they encountered a synagogue of the Jews together and spoke. They used words. They spoke. As they had done in Antioch Pisidian, the first place that they were, went to was a synagogue. Now, this was both necessary and it was practical. It was necessary because the gospel was intended to go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But it was practical because if they had gone to the Gentiles first, the Jews who didn't have a broader vision of what God had revealed, that the gospel would now go out not just to the Jews but to the whole world, they would be think this is a Gentile thing. We'll never be associated with that. This is their faith, and we have our own faith, and they would never make the connection. So it was, it was practical because Paul and Barnabas were also Jews, and so they had an automatic opportunity to go in. And since Paul was trained under Gamaliel and had certain uh, uh, reputation and was a known teacher, he would be asked to teach, and so he could come and say, the Messiah is here, and people would either accept it or deny it. So he went to the synagogue along with Barnabas, and they spoke. But notice the primary means that they used to communicate were words. They spoke. They didn't go in there and say, let's first set up a work of helping orphans or street children so that people will know that we really are genuine in our care. And perhaps when they ask us why we're doing these things, we could say, oh, it's because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have a platform. They had a platform. They had the words of Christ, which they spoke. That's how it always began. Back in chapter 13, in Acts chapter 13, verse 5, when they were on the island of Cyprus, it says, when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. When he got to Pisidian Antioch and was asked to share in the synagogue in chapter 13, verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And they left Iconium and they visited other cities. It says in in Acts 14, verse 7, they continued to what? 
to preach the gospel. Their focus was on preaching, not because they didn't find any social needs like we do today. There were great social needs. For example, Rome itself was a very large city, over a million people. It had social problems similar to any city today, in some cases much worse. Poverty was common there. There was a massive gap between the wealthy and the poor. A huge percentage of the population were actually slaves. Unemployment was extremely high, with up to 200,000 people in the city living off of state-sponsored welfare. The living conditions in Rome were, they had many disease-ridden slums. Conditions were, were terrible. Babies were abandoned on the streets. There was crime. There was prostitution. And as I already mentioned, slavery was a normal part of life. There were many needs in Rome. But when Paul eventually wrote to the church in Rome and planned to visit them, what did he say? Did he say, I cannot wait to get there so that I can establish some social justice ministries so that we can take care of some of the injustice that's there in your city? Rather, he wrote in Romans 1, 15 and 16, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. He wrote to believers in Rome wanting to preach the gospel to them. I think that's phenomenal in and of itself. I think sometimes we as believers tend to think that the gospel is something for unbelievers. And yet the gospel is just as much for believers as it is for unbelievers. Unbelievers need to hear the gospel because if they do not hear it, they cannot be saved. Believers need to hear the gospel because it reminds us of how we were saved. You think about, uh, you know, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, which says, Grace, the grace of God, teaches us to deny ungodliness. In Africa, there are many villages, and, and many of the villages have paved roads through them where cars and trucks come flying through, but not very often, maybe once a week. And as a young African child, I mean, seeing dirt all around you and now a nice paved road coming through, there would be a temptation to go play on the road. But parents who are like parents anywhere tell their children, do not play on the tar. And children who are like children anywhere, they go play on the tar. When their parents aren't around, they're in the fields or whatever, they're out there playing. Now, you can imagine yourself as a child out there playing on a tar road, and one day, maybe a truck's coming along, and uh, you don't hear it, and everybody gets off the road, and you're, you, you're about to be hit, but your neighbor sees you, comes out of his house, runs across the street, pushes you out of the way, and gets hit by the truck. And let's just suppose, to be not too gruesome, that it just cuts off his legs. So uh, now they rush him to the hospital, he survives, uh, you know, it's a clean amputation, they, they, they put him in a wheelchair, and let me ask you something. You're, you're devastated. You're, you can't believe it, but you can't believe what he did. You can't believe the sacrifice he made. The next day, if somebody says, let's go play on the tar road, would you go play on the tar road? No way. I mean, this man just, he's still in the hospital. Well, let me ask you this, five years after the event, when it's sort of you know, a day that you're not thinking about it, and some kids say, come on, this is great. There's a great game we're going to... Might you go? You might. But if he wheels out there and waves to you, and now you remember everything, would you go? No way. Why? Because grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, Titus 2.11. 
And that's why we as believers need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because the grace of God, which is given to us, reminds us of the sacrifice. He died for my sin. So we mustn't tune tune out the message when the gospel is being preached. And I think sometimes we almost think that the Bible is just not powerful enough to capture people's attention. We need to somehow soften them up with, with good works so that they will listen. But the primary way that God has designed his gospel to be communicated is through words. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul said that Christ sent him to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Down in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1, for indeed the Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's not eloquence, it's not human ability, it's not any of our good works that are going to draw people to the Christ, to Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is going to draw them and change their life if their life is to be changed. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10:17. Proclamation, we must use words. I read a story about a man who had uh, decided he got a new job and he says, I'm going to be a witness for Christ, but I'm not going to say anything here. You know, actions speak louder than words, so I'm just going to use my actions. And some time went by, years went by, and one day he heard that a co-worker of his came to faith in Christ. And he went, to, he went to him, he says, hey, I heard that you became a Christian. And the man says, I did, I did indeed. And he says, I'm so excited. I too am a Christian. He says, you are? He says, you're one of the main reasons why I didn't want to become a Christian. And he says, well, why is that? He says, because I looked at somebody who had a life that seemed to have so much contentment, so much joy, so much peace, so much to live for, and yet I didn't know you were a Christian. And I thought, well, if he can have a content life without Christ, why would I need it? Why would I need him? You have heard that actions speak louder than words. We know what we mean by that. We mean that actions alone mean very little. Uh, That words alone mean very little. But actions alone can be even more damning. And we must use words. We need to be people who proclaim the good news. And proclamation is the first description that has commonly occurred with Paul and Barnabas when they were fulfilling the mission given to them and their church. A second description of the mission of the church is it not only began with proclamation, but it resulted in polarization. Polarization. This is in verses, second part of verse 1 and verse 2, and then down in verse 4. When I say polarized, I mean like the North Pole and the South Pole. It divided people, and they were on polar opposites of the issue. There was nobody on the equator. Everybody had a, posi- a, 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 a position, and they were not in the middle. They were polarized. They were divided. Acts 14, verse 1, in the middle there it says, And they spoke, he spoke in such a manner that a large number, number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. This is good news. If you've been following this, you know, his journeys, this is great. Large number of Jews, large number of Greeks, a church is being formed. Acts 13, 52 
says that the disciples, those were from Pisidian Antioch, were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So people who came to faith in Christ were continually joyous, grateful, overwhelmed. The Messiah has come. He's brought salvation. This is good news. And they were, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. They were praising God for bringing Paul and Barnabas all the way to bring them the good news. But then on the other end of the extreme, Acts 14 verse 2, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And then down in verse 4 it says, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. Can you imagine living in a city where half the people thought that you were the greatest messenger ever to come, and the other half wanted to kill you? Half the town was cut to the quick and it would gnash their teeth at him like they did with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And the other half was was crying out, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. As one preacher said, when Paul walked into a room, it was either duck or pucker. He didn't know what to do. There was no middle ground. Now some people might say, well, how does this encourage me to keep about the mission of the church? Well, it should encourage you because, firstly, if you are hated by people for the message which you preach, you should know that this is normal. There are some people who love their sin so much that they do not want to give it up. But also, for those who love you because of the message that you proclaim, it should, it should, if, you, if you look at your life and say, well, nobody... Nobody really loves me because of the message I proclaim. They love me for other reasons, but I don't know that they really would say, I love that person because they stand up for the truth. Maybe it's because you need to work on proclaiming the truth a little bit louder. And that's the encouragement that we get from this passage. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that God is holy, that all men by nature are rebels against God. We all sin, and the last thing that we really want is for our sin to be exposed. By nature, we try and hide our sins. You don't have to teach children how to hide their sins. It comes naturally to them. They're not very good at it, but you don't have to say to them, hey, listen, next time you steal some chocolate cake, you should probably wipe the frosting off of your face because it's a big clue to me, and let me show you how to do it more discreetly. You know, go to the bathroom first, get some toilet paper and wipe your your mouth really good and then come back and, and say that you haven't eaten the chocolate cake. That'll be trickier. You don't have to teach them because they put two and two together and they get better at it naturally. They don't want their sin to be revealed. We're all like that. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ never sinned. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, Christ never had to die. Yet he allowed himself to be captured and crucified so that he, as our substitute, could be a sacrifice on our behalf. And those of us who have repented and turned and trusted from our sins, we know what it is to experience forgiveness, cleansing, grace, 
And Jesus Christ rose from the grave and conquered death, and he is the first fruits. In ancient times, when you planted a field, you didn't have all the equipment. It took days and weeks to plant the field. And then when the harvest came, the first section that you had planted were your first fruits. And they were a sign of what everything else was to come. And if it was a good year in the first fruits, it was going to be a good year with everything else. And if it was a bad year, it was a bad year for everything else. It was going to be obvious. You could tell from the first fruits. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the first fruits because the way he raised from the dead is a first fruit of many more resurrections. Everyone who is in Christ will be raised from the dead. He conquered death, and he conquered death for all. This is the good news. But the bad news is that those who do not repent of their sin, who want to keep their sin hidden and covered and, un, and un, undisclosed and so that they're not confessing it, if they have not repented and turned and trusted in Christ, then they will receive the condemnation that is due them. And we need to preach the truth. When I was, uh, I had a friend that I used to go to his store. He was a Muslim man, and we developed a relationship because I bought a lot of things from his store. And one day he said to me, um, you know, you and I actually have a lot in common. And I said, we do? I mean, besides the fact that you have things that I want and I have money that you want. And I mean, what else do we have in common? He said, uh, well, you know, you believe the Bible is a holy book, and I believe the Quran is a holy book. Okay. You believe in God. We believe in God. We just call him Allah. He says, you believe in Jesus. And he says, he believes in Jesus. That This man, he says, I believe in Jesus. I said, you do? He said, yes. I believe he was a good teacher, but I don't believe he was God. I said, now, wait a minute. I, I don't, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. If I walked into your store and said I was God... Would you think that I was in my right mind? I mean, think about it. Put it in your. What if I came here and preached today and declared to be declared myself to be God, that I'm God and I'm giving you? There would be some of you who would get up and walk out right away, and none of you would be saying, "Well, yeah, he's a little funny. He claims himself to be God, but man, I really love his teaching. I'd love to hear that some more." You would not call me a good teacher. You would call me the worst teacher you've ever heard because I, I claimed to be someone that I clearly was not and it affected everything else that I said. And Jesus claimed to be God. John 4.25, the woman at the well said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John ten thirty one, many of the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. His, the people he spoke to recognized what he was declaring. Remember in John chapter 20, Jesus had risen from the grave and he had appeared 
to 10 of the disciples. Judas was no longer with them. Thomas, we're not sure where he was. But Thomas came back and the disciples said, Jesus is risen from the grave. And what does he say? I will not believe unless I see the nail holes in his hands. And I will not believe unless I put my hand in the hole in his side. And then in John chapter 20, verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And Thomas, reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas worshipped Jesus as God. And Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped as God. And if, you know, if Jesus were just a man, that would have been idolatry. Later on in this chapter, Lord willing, we'll get there tonight when I come back for the evening service here. But in verses 8 through 20, Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra and God healed the lame man. And the people cried out in their own language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And, and what did they do? They ripped their clothes and said, no, we're just men. Angels would not allow themselves to be worshipped in the book of Revelation. But Jesus stands there and allows Thomas to declare, my Lord and my God. We mustn't let anyone patronize us by trying to focus on common ground when our beliefs at the core actually are opposed. We must make sure that we're not trying to muddy the waters and make it look like there's more unity than there is. We want people to see the truth. And in love, we want to share with them the truth. We can't say we worship the same God if our God is different than their God. Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me sees the Father. And in John 8, 24, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And yet, I read an article about a seminary that is trying to hold a conference and a movement to unite different faiths. The conference, quote, is for fruitful dialogues that build enriching relationships between different faiths. The mission of the early church was much like Jesus' mission which was polarizing. And we should recognize that. The mission began with proclamation. The mission resulted in polarization. And the mission involved planting, planting of churches, planting of churches. Acts 14.3 says, Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Now, some might look at that verse and they say, wait a minute, where does it say that they were planting churches? Well, I'd like to point out to you the word so or therefore at the beginning of verse 3. It it comes right after verse 2. Verse 2 says, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And you might not expect, when you see the word therefore, that there were Jews who, who were stirring up people and they were angry 
and they were getting them, you know, getting ready to throw stones at them, you might expect them to say, so they were very discreet in what they did. Or they quickly rushed out of there. But it doesn't say that. It says, therefore, they spent a long time there. Now, therefore also probably points back to the fact that there were many who were believing. But there was a great sense that they needed to stay there to plant churches. They were facing opposition. But when, when, when you think about the need for churches... Turn, look down in Acts 14, down to verse 21. I'm going to read verses 21 through 23. Because what happened is they actually moved on from Iconium, and they went to Lystra and then Derbe. And in verse 21, it says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's Derbe, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, that's Antioch, Pisidia, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God when they appointed elders for them in every church. That's where the church planting is at. The reason they were going is not just to proclaim. I think sometimes we get this idea of evangelists and the work of an evangelist in the New Testament times is different than what we think of when we think of an evangelist in today's times. Today, when we think of an evangelist, we think of somebody with 10 sermons and 10 suits who travels around the country and, and visits people for a short amount of time. But in, in ancient times, those who did the work of evangelist, men like Timothy, men like Titus, they, their work looked more like church planting, pastoral ministry than anything else. The only difference between an evangelist in the New Testament and a pastor in the New Testament is evangelists established were pastored people in churches where they were new and where they hadn't really been established in the Word of God yet. But they were speaking boldly for the Lord. The ESV says for the Lord. The New King James says in the Lord. But the New American, New American, New American Standard says with reliance upon the Lord. Part of their mission was to establish healthy churches. When I first went to Malawi, it was 1997, and I went in there to fill in for a missionary who was going to be gone for a year. And I took over for him on a property that was in... My dream was to be a bush missionary. I wanted to be in deep, dark Africa. I wanted to be far away from where anybody else had ever been, and I wanted to train people in the Word of God. And what I found was that I found a place where I fit in for a year. I was, it was 100 acres of land. I was the only Westerner around for miles and miles and miles. Um, I was, when I got there, there was no electricity. There was no running water. Um, I was getting water out of Lake Malawi. There were hippos and crocodiles right there. I'd boil the water. I mean, this was the dream. Isn't this what every believer wants, you know, to be out there and... and uh, have an opportunity to, you know, share the gospel. On the property where I was living on, they killed a hippo, uh, and, and, uh, and I got to eat some of the meat. I mean, this was, this was a dream come true. But I found that because we were involved in all kinds of work, we had, we had a Bible college with 26 students who were there. The students were helping us with an agricultural work. We had 400 chickens and 50 goats. We had a big garden that we were planting things in. We were trying to teach them how to do a uh, you know, holistic mission where they're, they're working with their hands, learning how to make money, and then that would support them. 
And what I found is not only did, was the holistic mission not really holistic. It wasn't even halfistic. It was, it was dominating itself on, the, on keeping the chickens going and the eggs. They got to get to the market. And we were sacrificing time that we would have liked to have spent more training them. But also, when you think about that mission work, is that we had, we had people coming to Christ. We had a camp with 240 Malawian kids coming. Many of them were getting saved. But the local church was so weak, and the pastors had so little training, that the question that kept on nagging me is, who's going to disciple these people who are coming to Christ? Who's going to shepherd them? Because the example we have is that the mission involved healthy churches. And if there's not a healthy church that's going to do the work of baptism and teaching, then the cart's before the horse. We're out there, and we're, we're just saying, well, they'll eventually figure the church out. We're going to do evangelism. And we need to be careful about putting the cart before the horse. Paul lived and died for the local church. He traveled around. He spent three years in Ephesus every day going door to door. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. His life was the church. He loved the church. And he was about planting churches. Don't get me wrong. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that you can't support missionaries who are helping in various areas of social action. What I'm saying is, if there's not a church there where people who may come to Christ are actually uh, can be discipled, then our mission is not balanced. Our mission is focusing on something that is different from the, the Great Commission, which is to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. And that needs to be at the forefront of our missionary effort. I'm not saying, I don't want to be the guy who comes to your church and you say, remember that guy who told us we should never support orphans? I'm not the anti-orphan guy. When I was in South Africa, our church, we had three ladies from our church who wanted to open some homes for abandoned HIV-positive babies. And they opened four homes. We took in 24 babies. They came to our Sunday school. They were involved in our church. I served on the board. They, we, we, we got established as a nonprofit. It still exists today. It was, a great, it was a great opportunity to reach out to me. That's who Christians are. Christians will reach out to those who are hurting their community. That's what we do naturally. But that's not the gospel. That's a result of the gospel. That's a result of a life that's been changed and transformed and says, I have such great compassion for those who are hurting. But first and foremost, they need to know Christ. And that's what my focus is going to be on. And if, as long as I'm doing that and that's my focus... I will, I, how can I not help look after other people who are hurting and reach out to them? Galatians 6.10 6, says, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So we have the, the freedom to do good to all people, but especially, let's not get into the situation where we're spending 99% of our effort on helping people that are outside the church way far away and we don't even know who's sitting next to us and what needs are happening here in this body.
Some people look at verse 3 and they say, wait a minute, aren't social needs here? I mean, in Acts 14.3 it says, um, granting them signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It's true they did signs and wonders, but those signs and wonders were actually confirmation of the word which was spoken. We'll talk a little bit more about that tonight, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It confirmed the message that was heard. And and that goes right along with our passage here. They were speaking boldly. So the mission began with proclamation. The mission resulted in polarization. The mission involved planting churches, but the mission often included persecution. Verses 5 and 6, beginning of verse 6. It says in verse 5, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it. There was a movement. There was a gathering. There was a conspiracy. Let's kill these guys before they get, get... You know, they had traveled from 100 miles to get up to Pisidian Antioch and then 80 miles further to get over to Iconium and people from the last village were still so angry with them, they came over and were, were following them and stirring up people who also disagreed with them. Verse 19 says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. That's pretty bad persecution, if even the people trying to kill you think that you're dead. You say, and again, how is this supposed to be an encouragement to me this morning? It should comfort you to know that when people are opposed to the message you speak or what you live for or what you hold dear to your life, what you think is most important in this world, and they reject you because of that, it should comfort you to know that it is normal. And it should also comfort you to see that Paul and Barnabas believed in the sovereignty of God so much that they always carried on. They had such a high view of God's sovereignty that he's in control and that my life is to trust in him. He sees my hurting. He sees my pain. He sees everything going on in my life. And I need to be faithful to him and to the mission he has given his church. And I will continue no matter what. Which leads us really to the fifth Detail the description of Paul and Barnabas' mission, not only proclaiming, polarizing, planting, or enduring it with persecution, but progressing. The fifth description in our passage that helps us understand our mission is the mission included progression to another place. Verses 6 and 7, they became aware of it. I don't know how they became aware of it. I mean, maybe they were really bad shots at throwing the rocks, and maybe they heard about it. They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, that is Lystra and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. What tenacity, what commitment to continue on, no matter how they were treated previously, they would continue to proclaim 
Not only that, but they, they came back and would sneak in and strengthen the church. I'd like to close this morning by really asking five questions just to, to apply this, because I know that this is a, a message, you hear this, and you read things now, and this is a hot topic. People are talking about social justice and, and how, what Christians should do. And so maybe you're asking, well, what should I do? I mean, who should I support? Who shouldn't I support? What should I do on mission trips? What, 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 what are, how does this really apply to me? Let me just ask you five questions. Actually, I'll, I'll shorten it, and we'll give you four questions. Four questions to help evaluate the work that you're involved with. First of all, is your missionary involvement neglecting proclamation? Is it neglecting proclamation? Are you involved in the church's mission to proclaim the gospel? Secondly, is your mission involvement driven by emotions? In other words, is it you just kind of have you don't have no you don't have any real plan. You don't have a strategy of missions. It's just like, well, whoever comes and I know his cousin and I know that and so and that seems like a good thing and oh, these pictures, this is photo-friendly ministry. I got to support that cuz my my heart just tugs at it. And I'm not saying your heart shouldn't tug at it. I'm just saying, do you have a strategy? Are you driven by emotions? Are you neglecting proclamation? Thirdly, might your missionary involvement be unbalanced? In other words, if it's to proclaim the, the, the truth and focus on church strengthening and church planting first, uh, is there, are, are you doing 10% of that and 90% of all kinds of other mission work? Where, where, is your, where are your resources going? Fourthly, is your missionary involvement too universal? In other words, there is a lot of been written about the universal poor of the world and even passages taken out of context, like Matthew 25, the least of these. The least of these were not the universal poor of the world. The least of these were those sent ones who were out there, who were imprisoned, who were needing care, and so forth. And so we, we see passages misapplied. Um, John thirteen thirty five, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I, I just think if there is, uh, if we're going to be, if we're going to be, have one social action that's going to draw people to Christ besides proclamation, may it first and foremost be loving one another within the body of Christ, so much so that people look at this church and they say, I can't believe how they love and care for one another. It's unbelievable. Every other place on this planet, people actually tolerate each other at best and hate each other is the norm. And this place, it's completely different. By this, all men will, you, will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So if your answer is no to those questions, if you say, well, I'm not neglecting proclamation, I'm not driven more by emotion than the word, I'm not unbalanced in my mission, and I'm not too universal in my mission, I really do care about reaching out to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here in the body, and you still have a desire and the resources to help, orphans and drill wells and send doctors and and uh and, and i'm for this you know malawi is a country i spent 11 years in it's a country of 17 million people and an article came out on a bbc website which says there are only 265 doctors in malawi 265 doctors 17 million people if somebody here is a doctor and wanted to go to malawi and came to the you know and said do you think i should go i would encourage you to go 
but I would want your church to have a whole mission plan. I would want to make sure that it was tied in with proclamation. And you might not be primarily doing proclamation, but you need to have a place and, an, and, and the, uh, a mission that is tied together with a solid local church. Otherwise, we need to go in there and do serious church planning at the same time. And the danger, if we lose that focus, because I know that some people say, well, really, what's the difference? I mean, some churches say that social justice is part of the gospel, and we do it at the same time as the gospel. And other people say, well, no, it's just the result of the gospel. But at the end of the day, everybody still has a heart for it. So what's the big deal? The big deal is this. Historically, and this morning we talked about the Reformation at the beginning, the church gets off focus. And the church has a tendency, when it's focused on things like social action, to get off focus on discipleship and the truth, on the word. Because when the mission of the church fails, liberalism flourishes. And true worship then dies. And our greatest desire is worship of him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of these faithful disciples, these sent out ones who proclaimed, even though there was polarization, they planted in the midst of persecution and they kept on progressing with perseverance. And we're so grateful, Lord, for them. We want your name to be honored. We, we want to be individuals who glorify your name and are about your business. So help us to keep the right focus. And I pray for this church too, Lord, that you would continue. I'm so encouraged with the congregation here and their high view of your word, but may it continue with the right focus and the right mission. We pray now that our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his great great grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope May he encourage this congregation's hearts and strengthen you in every good word and in every good deed. To him be the glory, we pray forever and ever. Amen.